Let us now turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, where we'll turn to verse 16. Mark 15, 16, where we begin to read uh, 16 verses down through verse 32. Beginning to read then with verse 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together uh, the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed, and spat on him, and, uh, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took down the purple off him and put his own clothes on them and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. When they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man would take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription, on, uh, 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 the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right side and one on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. <clears throat> Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. May the Lord bless this passage to our good understanding. The title of the sermon today is uh, A Time for Anger. A Time for Anger. Anger is uh, an emotion <clears throat> that we uh, largely decree, decry today. Uh, we, our society, glories in uh, being nice and being kind. And um, that, is, uh, that is certainly good as far as it goes. The problem is today that our culture extends that prohibition of anger even unto Satan. That is, we should not hate Satan. We should not hate our sin. We should not hate uh, efforts to ruin Christ's kingdom. Uh, these various things. But, um, but we should love. Things like homosexuality and sodomy, transgenderism. We should love uh, people getting beat up in the streets as long as it happens to be that group of people that have been uh, condemned by 
the society at large, especially those people who would make judgments on others, people like Christians, <laughs> people like ourselves. So this, this issue of love and hatred is a very, a very difficult subject. And, um, but what I'm pointing out here is that when you read through the details of the condemnation of Christ, it ought to raise a holy hatred in your heart for the circumstances for these people that did this, for the leaders of the Romans, for the leaders of the Jews, for the general population of Israel as they are portrayed here. It ought to raise uh, your hatred against these things. Uh, Ephesians says, be, be angry, but do not sin. So there we have a promise that there is a time to be angry um, as long as we do not sin in our anger. So it lays down the promise or the hope that there is a way to be angry and yet avoid sin. And in fact, our anger is a, a sign of godliness if it's, if it's concerned with the right things. And how can we read through these details uh, looking at whom they are persecuting, looking at the virtues of Christ, the beauties of Christ, the one man of all the world who should not have been condemned, the one man of all the, the population of the earth which should not have been testified against, should not have charges been brought against. The one man, the best man, becomes the worst man in the clutches of the rulers of men. How can you not be angry at the injustice of that? How can your heart not be touched by revulsion? When you see the beauty of Christ reviled like this, we've been taking months, a year here, to study the Gospel of Mark. Time after time after time, we see the loveliness of our Lord Jesus Christ. His willingness to bring his purity, his heavenly purity down into this world and be exposed to the hatred of men, just the, the confusion of men, the stupidity of men. He is willing to do this, and he's willing to explain himself. We have a hard time sometimes explaining ourselves to our husbands and wives. We get frustrated with each other. How come she doesn't understand her? How come he doesn't understand? I've said it perfectly. I've said it perfectly clearly, right? But we, we fail to understand. Christ exposed himself to this and then some. And then the rest of it, the fact that people would not only not understand him, but they would contend with him. They disagreed with him, and they'd contend with him in their disagreement, telling him that he didn't know what he was talking about. Think of the, uh, the, uh, the ignominy of this, the high king of heaven coming down and having to dispute with people like ourselves. We can find fault with each other on this kind of thing, where the other person just doesn't understand. They don't know something that we know, or they, they don't, their logic is illogic. And it frustrates us in our unholy condition. Imagine being the Son of God and coming into this kind of world and having that kind of experience. Imagine that. And then being found guilty of a capital crime, being reviled, finally condemned to death, and put to death here, as we soon see in our text for next week. But to hear he was crucified, and uh, uh, 
And that is an amazing thing. So first of all, we're going to look at the details of the mockery here. We're going to look at the mockery. There's so much, there's so many details here that Mark brings out that describe the, uh, the scorn, the insults, the disgust, the contempt of mankind for this Savior. So we're first of all going to look at the details of this, <clears throat> mainly having to do with the soldiers at first. And then we're going to look at this, the special ironies of him being condemned as the king of Israel, which is above the cross. That's the sign, of the, 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 uh, the plaque that's above his head <clears throat> that lists the charge, the capital charge for which he was found guilty. And then, then we'll look at a few, just a few small redeeming features of this text that kind of are touching to our hearts. So first of all, the details. We start with verse 16. It says, Then the soldiers led him away to a hall called the Praetorium. Now we know that in, in Rome, the, the highest uh, group of soldiers was the Praetorian Guard. And... Uh, they were the special guardians of Caesar, but the, that word was used then uh, for um, uh, the barracks, the special um, places of their Roman authority throughout their, the colonized world. And so they took him away to this hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. Now, Jesus, in this case, was a kind of celebrity, and he was in the hands of soldiers. Now, you... You have, to, you have to think about the idea of the soldier. The soldier plays a particular, a unique role in this world of ours. The soldier is not the, is not the president or the king. The soldier is not the commander. The soldier is the, the foot soldier, in a sense, who, through whom the dictums from on high are worked out. The soldier does the dirty work uh, that is decided upon by the nation. <clears throat> And, uh, and oftentimes, the, the, so, the, the soldier is where the authority of the empire meets the common man. And that's the way it was in this case. Now, in this case, it says the whole garrison was called together for the condemnation of Christ. If Christ was nothing, if Christ was a fool, why would they have spent this effort upon him? But they, they wouldn't have. You see, even in their, uh, their degradation, of him, they show that he's special, and and so the whole garrison gathers. Well, again, why would the whole garrison gather in such a case? Uh, they, there was something spectacular about Jesus that uh, that they that they're gathering the whole garrison together testified to, even though they mocked him and they scorned him and they treated him like an imbecile like some fool, like a contemptuous thing, and all the off-scouring of the earth, even though they treated him that way, their attention to him uh, uh, belays or belies uh, what they really thought of him, that there was something special there. And, uh, and uh, so they clothed him with purple and scarlet, one of the Gospels says, um, which is the which is the color of royalty or the color of the of the emperor, and um, they twisted a crown of thorns upon his head. So they gave him a crown. Now, obviously, they are treating him with contempt. 
they are they're saying, okay, Israel, um, this is your king. And uh, look, he has a crown on his head. Look, he's, he's clothed with the robes of the emperor. Uh, and uh, the, But the thorns, of course, were cruel because they cut into the, the, the skin of the forehead of Jesus and blood, uh, dripped drops of blood, no doubt, issued from them. As they It says they twisted a crown of thorns down upon his head. So they did this in a rough way, as soldiers are often wont to do. If soldiers are governed by an unholy authority, they can be exceedingly cruel. They can be satanic in the, the uh, execution of the strength of the empire or whatever government it is that they honor. We think of Africa and some of the, the terrible things that have been done in the wars over there by the soldiers of whatever power it was that, that, that ruled, whether in Uganda in years past under Idi Amin, uh, or in the Congo in days past. Terrible things. And uh, then they be, it says they began to salute him. And in the English it says, Hail, King of the Jews. Well, I don't, I don't know whether most of you know how the, how the legions saluted, but they saluted using the Nazi uh, salute, where you raise the hand like this in front. Now, in fact, what happened was that the Nazi, that the that this Roman hail had been lost in military history, and uh, Hitler resurrected it because he wanted to resurrect the the uh, the uh, thousand year Reich or the thousand year reign of Germany. So when you see the when you see the Nazi salute, where they all in a crowd, you know, raising their hand, that's exactly what the, that's exactly what was being done here by the soldiers. And the Heil is translated hail, very, very similar in the cognates of the of linguistically. Uh, and so hail, king of the Jews, hail, king of the Jews. And it says they began to salute him this way. That is, the, the verbal tense means that they continued to do it. It was an ongoing kind of a thing. Hail, hail, king of the Jews, hail, king of the Jews. And all of this was a mockery, was it not? Because he was in their clutches. He had no power. He was in the arms of the devil, arms of the of Satan. And Satan could do whatever he wanted with him at this time, according to the gospel of Satan. Hail, king of the Jews. So um, this theme of the king of the Jews is introduced here early on with the soldiers and what they, what they do. And then it says they struck him on the head with a reed, meaning some, some reeds banded together, like more like a, a, a broom or something like that, which would, you can definitely give a good hit to somebody, but it, 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 you know, it's a way that you can persecute them, swatting them back and forth, mocking them in, with your power. And then they spit on him. Uh, spitting is a sign of utter contempt. Normally, when we spit, it's because we've got some something, something kind of wasteful, toxic, maybe uh, even uh, an indication of sickness, a cold, or something like that. And uh, and when we spit, we spit on the ground, don't we? We take, we get, we we exude this toxic stuff, this ruinous stuff, this stinky stuff 
that we have in our mouths, we get that out upon the ground. So to spit on a human being shows our utter contempt. Again, this is Jesus Christ. The men ought to have been ready to hail him, to honor him, to worship him in the highest way possible, the most enthusiastic way possible. But now we have the opposite of that from what the text says. Um, they, they bowed down the knee to him uh, and they worshipped him sarcastically. So they're treating him with utter, utter contempt. And it says, when they had mocked him, it shows the, the text itself interprets all this as a mocking, as a scorning, as a humiliation. They took the purple off him, put his own clothes on them, and led him out to crucify him. Matthew Henry says, after they glutted themselves, after they glutted themselves with uh, his mockery, and then they, they redressed him in his clothing so that they could take him for the crucifixion. So these were soldiers who were playing with a, 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 a citizen, a normal citizen, a non-combatant, as it were. They were playing with him because they had the strength to do so. It's the ultimate example of might makes right. If you're strong enough in this world, Oftentimes you can do whatsoever you want with no reference at all to the righteousness of what you do. This was the picture of the soldiers. Now we look at that, and uh, if that does not cause you to be angry, we would be angry if we saw somebody kick a dog, would we not? Some animal. But here is no animal. Here is the Christ, the Son of God. Does that not inspire you to a contempt yourself or an anger yourself? It should. And if, we, if it doesn't, there's something wrong with us. Now, uh, in this, uh, we see all kinds of things that are contemptuous with the soldier's behavior. And uh, in my heart, as I read through this text, I thought this is the only honest emotion that we ought to have. But, we lose perspective here if we do not understand that if these men were evil, if these men did 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 not do evil themselves, if, if these men do not inspire our contempt for them, the one thing we forget is that we were the captains of these very men. In other words, why did Jesus have to be here in this position? Were he not trying to save us from our sins? Was he not driven to this place of vulnerability because of what we had done before? So we can be angry at the soldiers, and I would argue we ought to be angry at the soldiers. I would argue that there's something wrong with us if we're not angry at the soldiers. But however angry, are, angry we are with the soldiers, ought we not to be more angry with our commanders, the ones who have driven them to this, the ones who have given them the freedom to do this? And when we think that way, we think of ourselves and only ourselves. Oh, we are so quick to excuse our sins. The mindset that leads us to sin. We're, we so easily excuse these things and explain them away. Was it, was it not those things that drove Christ to be where he was? Was it not those things that drove him into the clutches 
of unbelievers and their cruelty. And so we have to admit that. And then it brings, it just levels us and, uh, and brings us to tears that we, he's numbered amongst the sinners, but so are we by the opposition that he found here. Now, uh, secondly, then, some special notes on his kingship <clears throat> that we see in this text. As Jesus is made a mockery of, and he's, as he's made spoil of in this passage, we realize that even as he was, even as this was being done to him, that he was the cosmic king over every breath that these soldiers took. Can you imagine that? It says in the Bible, of, uh, uh, in him and through him, we, we live and move and have our being. It says that, that uh, Colossians says that in him, that in the Lord, in Christ, we cohere, that is, he holds us together. He holds us together in our, our bodies together. As they were mocking Jesus on this occasion, he could have unleashed the furies of his deity. Uh, there are some movie presentations of this that have been made, the, uh, the, trying to portray the, power, the divine power and the holy of holies when it's rediscovered by some uh, explorer, that sort of thing. They're not far off in terms of if God unleashed his power at any moment, he could just utterly uh, take us apart and have it be the most excruciating thing imaginable. So here we have this Jesus, the Son of God, who through whom all things were made at the beginning of the creation, who has this intimate relationship to the, the very coherence of, of creation, the coherence of the things of creation, every body that is there that is held together, it was brought to it was brought to pass through his power, and it's sustained by his power, and it can be destroyed by his power. And yet here is this this divine son who is willing to endure all of this mockery and scorn for the sake of a higher end. For the sake of a higher end, even the salvation of the elect. So first of all, he was cosmic king even then when he was being spoiled and persecuted and hailed and mocked. He was cosmic king even then, controlling even their very breaths. Secondly, regarding this charge of kingship, from of old, the Messiah, who was to come, was a king. We know he was, when David, prophecies were made about David by Samuel, which, which identified the Messiah as the son of David, as the king of Israel. So literally, uh, Jesus was the king of Israel when he came. He was perfect. The, the theologians talk about him being prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. They see in this word king and in the office of king, they see... A, a unique way of understanding Jesus and the work that he came to do in the office that he executed. Jesus never gave that. He was literally king of Israel. He was the most worthy king to ever come to Israel 
even now when he was allowing himself to be mocked and despoiled. Thirdly, we see that the crucifixion was meant to be contemptuous of a scoundrel. Remember, the crucifixion, crucifixion was not mosaic. Crucifixion was Roman. The Jews never crucified anybody when they executed somebody. They stoned them to death. Crucifixion was a, a Roman way of, of uh, taking someone's life. When somebody was an utter scoundrel, when they were rebel and seditious against the empire, they could be crucified, and the crucifixion was to make a public mockery out of somebody and just let them hang upon this cross out in the public until the body rotted away on the cross. So the birds would come and eat the, eat the body. It was like a garbage dump, but made up of human bodies hanging upon these crosses. That was Roman. That was beneath. That was beneath the jurisprudence, the legal authority of Israel. But Jesus, um, Jesus was meant for this, and uh, uh, he was crucified, and uh, he endured this contempt because he represented not just the people of Israel, the elect of Israel, he represented all the elect of mankind. And so God used the, uh, the empire of Rome to bring this special wrath down upon his son, which is spoken about and explained in Psalm 22, where it explains how uh, our Lord Jesus was to be crucified. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It goes on after that. And, uh, and this was meant for uh, the legitimate king of, uh, of Israel. It was not, it was, crucifixion was meant for the, the absolute scoundrel of Rome, but as Jesus is willing to identify with the evil of mankind, he steps in and is crucified. So the, the death itself is very, very ironic. Fourthly, uh, God used Pilate's contempt to shame Israel's Congress. The Sanhedrin was a representative of the, of the old Congress of rulers. All the tribes sent their representatives of, to the Congress in Israel. Uh, all the elders of Israel would meet together for national issues. And God used Pilate's contempt because Pilate, uh, remember, Pilate had written the sign, Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. And they said, the rulers came to Jesus, or came to Pilate and said, we want you to change the signs. Change it to Jesus said he was the King of the Jews. And Pilate just, he had the Jews before him. He, Pilate was contemptuous of Israel. He was contemptuous of the rulers of Israel, the Jewish leaders of that day. And so he used their hatred of Jesus, he used that back against them in an ironic way. So he puts on the cross, the, above Jesus' head, this sentence, that Jesus, the King of the Jews, he put it in three languages, um, uh, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, the three languages that were spoken in that part of the world. Because he wanted... He wanted the Jews of that day, the Sanhedrin, the, this Congress, what was left of the Congress of Israel, in their 
in their uh, their slave status to Rome, he wanted them to to have to understand what power they were under, and he wanted that he wanted to mock them. He wanted to say, "Well, we have we have Caesar in Rome. Here is your king. We're able to toss him about. We're able to slap him, spit on him, do anything we want. This is your king. This is you, Israel." This is what we think of you. So, so God in his providence used their own hatred against Jesus to recoil upon themselves. Even as they succeeded, they failed, even in this life. It was a crazy kind of a thing. And so this, the idea of Christ's kingship today, the kingdom of God and the kingship of Christ is really maligned. Even in this, in some of the government overreach that we've seen in the last year, the people will say, well, the Bible says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and unto the, unto the Lord what is the Lord's. And then they just, they render everything to Caesar. They don't make any kind of effort to search out what is proper for Caesar and what is proper for the Lord. God, the living God, has established Christ as his great viceroy, his great Pope, if you will, which the Pope has usurped by his claiming that that same role today. And uh, God has put Christ in that role. Christ is the king of this world. And, and Christ is king of the church. Now, in that role of Christ as king of the church, what in the world is the world thinking? The governments of this world, what are they thinking when they think that they have the power to close the church of Jesus Christ? You see, people just don't understand what it means to be Lord, what it means to, for Christ to be king. We could do a whole week or a month's Bible study and, and source all of that out. But what you would see in the end is that Christ is the rightful king of this world and Christ is the rightful king of the church. And if anything, the church which marches to the orders of the Bible, of the biblical Christ, has more authority than the state in terms of its uh, in terms of its nobility, its uh, its uh, uh, prophetic sourcing, the revelation that guides it, and these kinds of things. That's not to say that the church doesn't make huge mistakes itself. The medieval church made huge mistakes. The, the medieval church put it put itself in the place of of the civil sphere. So men are men. Men are sinners. Men do crazy things in terms of what they know about the Bible and what they should do. But this does not excuse Caesar taking all power and all authority unto himself when he does not have it. Okay, lastly here, the redeeming features of this, of this passage. Um, first of all, we have um, two prophecies that are borne out in this passage. Um, Psalm 22.16 says that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Psalm 22, 16. His hands and his feet would be pierced. God knew this afar off, what would be done. As I said before, there was no crucifixion in the Old Testament. So how in the world could the Messiah's hands and feet be pierced? It's a, it's a, uh, it would be an oxymoron. It would be an impossibility. But in God's providence, through the raising up of the Roman Empire and the, the death penalty that they conceived, and the accusations against the divine son, Jesus, it was, it, it was successfully done. It's amazing when you think about it. Uh, 
Uh, Moses, uh, Moses and the prophets prophesied that his hands and his feet would be pierced. That's not a part of the Mosaic uh, death penalty. How does that happen? Well, it happened because God's word is God's word. Then uh, 22, 18, they cast lots for his uh, garments. Uh, that is fulfilled here as the soldiers cast lots for the used clothing of Christ. It shows how... <laughs> It shows how uh, sick they were. Uh, it's like going. It's like claiming the Salvation Army clothing as great treasures or something. You know, it's the the stuff that Jesus was in that blood on them, dirt, and yet here they were thinking they're casting lots for it, thinking that they had some great uh, victory by winning the lot. Uh, Another second redeeming feature here, besides the word of God being successful, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, we see uh, in verse 21, we see the mention of Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross for a while for him. And it says in the text, it says, the father of Alexander and Rufus, uh, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross, the soldiers grabbed this man. And uh, how, how do we know, by his carrying the cross, how do we know that he had sons named Alexander and Rufus? Well, obviously, the family became Christian. Alexander and Rufus were, you know, leaders of the church of that day. So here's a man who comes, to, comes through Jerusalem just minding his own business, doing nothing. He's co-opted to carry the cross of Christ. And his life was changed. His life was changed. He could not be around Jesus for very long. How could the Jews who had been around him for so long, how could they have not been changed by this one? But Simon, carrying the cross of Christ, the Holy Spirit fell upon him at some point and changed him and his family. So it wasn't just him, but it was his sons, Alexander and Rufus. Oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And then we see in verse 29, lastly, that, that Israel uh, blasphemed, the, the whole of Israel in a sense, it says, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. And it says even in the last part of verse 32, it says even those who were crucified with him reviled him. We think of how common Israel, sometimes we, we place such uh, august, pride and honor in the common man. Well, this is a picture of the common man right here. The common man is no better than his rulers, usually. And in this case, um, they blasphemed our Lord in the same way that their rulers did. And yet, <clears throat> uh, what do we see? We know that one of those two men who reviled him, one of the thieves on the cross, in the end, said, ask Jesus to have mercy upon him. He had seen, like Simon of Cyrene, he had been with the Lord, and the Holy Spirit opened his eyes and his heart, and he was convulsed with sickness over his own sin and the purity and the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he asked Jesus for help, and Jesus blessed him, gave him a benediction upon his head and said, today 
Today <laughs> you shall see me in paradise. Amen. What, what a text of scripture. So, uh, hatred is conjured up by this text, and yet we realize that we cannot shy away from it because we are the ones who brought this about because of our own faulty views of righteousness, our own, our own misbegotten loves. We love the wrong things. We love the things of Satan rather than the things of the Lord. And so, um, uh, we see here that, uh, we see here what Jesus was willing to do driven by love. And uh, we hate, we, we come around, come, we should ought, ought to come out hating ourselves as sinners and and, and thinking to ourselves, we we must have, we must have this grace of God. We must have it. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that our hearts might be moved by this text of Scripture. That that the anger of our hearts might be um, fired. And then, O oh Lord, we pray that we might see that this anger is best put upon ourselves for being the captains of these soldiers and all of their wrath and the captains of all these people, the Israelites at the time, and all of their mockery. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would use thy small, soft voice to convert our hearts today to see the beauties of Jesus Christ and yet the great power Christ at the same time which was testified to by his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty in which position he has all power under heaven and earth to do whatsoever he would and we pray O Christ in this position that you might save your city that you might save the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that you might Give her more strength in this day. Give her more strength to suffer. Give her more strength to witness. Give her more strength to testify on thy behalf. And in the end, O oh Lord, we pray that thou wouldst give her more strength to reign so that this satanic empire might be totally overturned and that we might see only thy good surviving. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.